And as we talk about this passage, we're going to try something different today. So since we're meeting on Zoom, that gives us opportunities to play with technology and do things that may be harder to do in person. So we're going to try something today for the first time. It might be the only time if it totally crashes and burns. But we're going to try having a question and answer time after the service, after the sermon, about the sermon. So what we're going to do is as I'm preaching, if you have questions, pull up your chat box on Zoom and send a private message to Les. So uh, you can pull up the chat box. It'll say send to everyone. Click that and you'll find Les's name. Click that and then type out your question and send it to him. And also, if you have questions about the passage that I don't mention in the sermon, you can send those to Les. And when the sermon ends, instead of doing our normal sermon discussion, what's going to happen is Les is going to pull up some of the questions that were sent to him, and he will ask them to me, and we'll have a conversation about it. Does that sound good? Everyone clear on what to do? So again, like I said, could go great, could crash and burn, uh, but we're going to try it. Send your questions to Les. And with that, let's jump into the sermon. So I am curious. If someone told you that right now, Jesus is in control of the world and he is working for good, what would you expect that to look like in normal everyday day-to-day -day life? Would you expect that you would suddenly become wealthy and prosperous and that you no longer struggle with illness and that your family and friend relationships would be completely peaceful and great? Would anyone expect maybe that? Would anyone maybe expect that we'd suddenly have solid Christian leaders in power in all the nations of the world and that they'd be putting legislation in place that makes people in society follow God's laws? Would you maybe expect the end of war and poverty if you knew that Jesus was in control and he was working for good? Would any of you, if you heard that Jesus was in control and that he was working for good, would any of you expect suffering in the world at any point in that process? Well, I ask this question because we're going through the book of Revelation as a church, and we started a couple of weeks ago looking at the background of the book. We saw that it's written to real churches, real people, to help them be people who overcome, who stay faithful to Jesus no matter what they face in life. And then last week, we had this look inside God's throne room. And we saw that seeing God properly leads to worship. And we saw that God has a plan for how he's going to accomplish his purposes in history. We saw that Jesus is the only one worthy to put God's plan into place. And today, we're going to look at what happens when Jesus begins to put God's plan into place. When, when God's plan begins to unfold in the world, and it's probably not at all what any of us would expect it to look like. And what we're going to see today is that suffering will happen, but God's people will stand. Suffering will happen, but God's people will stand. And we'll look at a universal experience, special suffering, and then this question of who can stand. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for giving us um, this insight into this vision from Revelation of of the world from your perspective. And I pray that you would show us today what your plans are for the world and how those impact us, what that means for our lives, and that we would be able to live as people who are faithful to you no matter what we face in life because of what we hear and talk about today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So first, a universal experience. Jesus begins unfolding God's plan in history, and we don't immediately see any of the blessings and goodness that I think most of us would naturally expect. Instead, we see suffering. Actually, the next several sections of Revelation have a lot of suffering in them. There are three sets of seven judgments that are coming up in Revelation. First, the one we're looking at today, the seven seals, and then there's going to be seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven bowls. And each of these is a series of judgments that comes on the world. And I want to take a minute before we jump in today to just discuss these three sets of judgments and how they relate to one another before we look at the seals themselves. And so what we see is that the seals, trumpets, and bowls, all of them are referring to general patterns of events that are going to happen simultaneously on the earth throughout the entire period of time between Jesus' life on earth and when Jesus comes again. So they're not happening chronologically, like the seals happen, and then the trumpets happen, and then the bowls happen. That's, that's not what this looks like. What's happening is the seals are happening, and the trumpets are happening, and the bowls are happening all at the same time. Does that make sense? And it's happening the entire time from when Jesus was on earth to when Jesus comes again. And they don't happen chronologically one after another. They happen simultaneously. And they happen simultaneously because each of them gives us a different perspective on the same series of events so that we can understand what's happening in those events on different levels. So from the seals, we see that everyone on earth will suffer in life, but God uses suffering to purify Christians while simultaneously bringing out his justice on the world that persecutes us. So everyone suffers, but God uses suffering to purify Christians. From the trumpets, we see that God gives the unbelieving world warning after warning so that they have opportunities to turn to him and trust in him. And then for the bowls, we see that for those who don't listen to God's warnings, his justice and judgment have the last word for them. And I realize if you've never been taught anything about Revelation before, you're probably happy to accept that I know what I'm talking about here. Uh, but I also realize there are probably some people here who have been taught something different about these judgments in the past. Uh, specifically, that these judgments are not referring to patterns of events throughout history, but that they're referring to specific events in the future. And if that's what you've been taught and that's what you believe, that's fine. You can believe that. But remember, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that biblically, the last days started with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which happened 2,000 years ago. And the last days continue from then until Jesus comes again. So right now, we're living in the last days. We have been living in the last days for the past 2,000 years. And even if you disagree with me about these things being patterns throughout this whole time period, and you think they're all about specific events in the future, the Bible refers to suffering in the last days as birth pains. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a woman who's in labor. My wife has given birth a couple of times, and I've, I've watched this process up close. When someone's in labor and having birth pains, they start out with these contractions that are mildly uncomfortable. They last for a relatively short amount of time, and they're not that frequent. 
And then from that moment when it starts until the baby arrives, the type of pain that the woman is experiencing does not change. What changes is the frequency of it. It becomes way more frequent. The duration of it, each time it comes, it lasts for a longer amount of time. And the intensity of it, it gets stronger and stronger. But at the most fundamental level, it's the same type of pain all along, repeating over and over and over, just in ways that become increasingly painful until there's a baby. And so if suffering in the last days is like birth pains, that means even if all these things are referring to things coming in the future, we should expect that these types of events will be happening during that entire period of time from when Jesus was on the earth for his life on earth to when he comes again. So even if you disagree with me, even if you think all these things are future events, there's still gonna be patterns happening in our world today precisely because they're coming in the future and the types of things that will happen in the world today match the types of things that are gonna come in the future. Does that make sense? You still with me? All right, good. So in today's passage, we are looking at the seals. And as Jesus opens the seals, we are introduced to four horsemen. So with each of these first four seals, as it's opened, a horse and its rider are sent out to bring chaos and destruction on the earth. And the first horse has a white rider. And this white rider is sent out conquering and to conquer. And you know what's super, super scary about this rider? He looks a ton like Jesus. Like, remember how I've said before that colors are really significant and symbolic in Revelation? Well, the color white always refers to Jesus or his people in Revelation everywhere it appears, except right here with this white horse. Not only that, but this rider on a white horse, he wears a crown just like Jesus does. He is sent out to conquer, and Revelation describes Jesus as a conqueror. In Revelation 19, we actually see Jesus riding into battle in order to conquer, and he rides on a white horse wearing a crown just like this white horse. But based on the Old Testament references and images that John is drawing from here, this is most likely not Jesus. It's most likely a force that's, that's opposed to God that's sent out to harm the earth. And so what's happening here is that this conqueror is someone who rides out looking like Jesus with purposes that seem really similar on the surface to Jesus' purposes, but he isn't Jesus. Instead, it's the conquering kings of the earth. And here's the danger, is that these conquering kings look a ton like Jesus. And so if we don't know Jesus on a really deep level that allows us to distinguish the true Jesus from the pretenders, we're not going to be able to distinguish whether these conquering kings are truly good or not. We're going to be drawn into their lives. We're going to follow them into destruction, all the while thinking that we are doing what's right. And this white horse has definitely been at work throughout the world in the past 2,000 years. I'll choose one really obvious example. Think about World War II. Hitler comes along and he promises his people heaven on earth. He tells them, if you give me power, I will make Germany the next great empire of the world. It will be a place of blessing for you. And what happened? People swarmed to this Messiah-like figure and his Christ-like promises, 
and they marched out behind him to conquer and death and destruction plagued the earth. That's the white horse at work right there. The white horse brings conditions that lead to war, not only physical war, but also spiritual war. There are spiritual forces at work in the world drawing us to try and get us to place our hope in politics, in conquest in this world, so that we lose our focus and true hope in Jesus. And the white horse is at work in our world today as well. It's at work in our world today anytime political leaders promise that they are the solution to the world's problems. Have you ever heard that promise? You just put me in power. I will fix what's wrong in our nation. I will fix what's wrong in our world. The white horse is at work anytime their followers place hope in their leader to be the savior. And it happens all the time in pretty much every country of the earth. I don't need to give specific examples because I think we've all seen this so many times throughout our lives, people placing their hope in political leaders to do what only Jesus can do. And every time that happens, it's the white horse at work. But Jesus is the only true savior. And so anytime we place our hope in a person or a political system to give what only Jesus can give, we ourselves are actually working towards promoting the chaos and destruction of the white horseman in our world. You doing okay so far? I know that's intense. And I just want to warn you, it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better because we have three more of these guys to go. So the second horse that comes out is bright red. And we're told that its rider takes peace from the world by bringing war, which logically follows in the footsteps of that white horse. Anytime a conqueror comes along and promises to change things and be the new messiah, there's always a group of people who don't want change. And so they fight it because they stand to lose from whatever changes are coming. And the red horseman brings that spirit of conflict that leads us to fight in the world. And this fighting can happen in full-scale military conflict. That's happened so many times throughout history. It's happening in different parts of our world today. You think about the news from Myanmar and Sudan, but it can also happen in more everyday stuff. It can happen in churches when factions develop and people try to tear one another down with their words and discredit them rather than loving one another. The red horse is that spirit of chaos and division and fighting that finds its fullest and clearest expression in warfare, but it's still very much at work in the smaller conflicts of life. When spouses, husbands and wives get into a shouting match in their home, the red horseman is at work in their marriage. And this horseman, again, is set loose on earth to bring warfare and conflict as part of God's plan. And then the third horse is released. The third horse is a black horse, and its rider spreads poverty on the earth. Now, if you look at the prices that he's told to charge for food, these are prices designed to widen the poverty gap on earth. It's not a full-on famine. You can still get anything you want, but only if you have the money. And the, the things are priced, the food is priced in such a way that the essentials of life, things like wheat and barley, things you need to survive, are so expensive that a normal day laborer, after working for a full day, can afford to buy food to feed his family, and that's it. All the money he earns just goes towards keeping people fed. But the luxury items, things like olive oil and wine, their prices are not impacted. So the rich are able to keep living in luxury, 
They're able to keep living in comfort with no extra financial burden on themselves, but the poor are dragged into deeper and deeper poverty just to make ends meet. And so the gap between rich and poor just keeps getting bigger. And man, is that a reality in our world today? When Justine first moved to Hong Kong, she worked for a nonprofit organization based in the Philippines that worked with the ultra poor. And her job was to write reports for donors about the work this ministry did. And I read a handful of these reports and they would basically go something like, John's job as a farmer or a taxi driver or whatever job he does only pays 10 Hong Kong dollars per day, which is barely enough for John to put food on the table for his wife and their two-year-old child. But when John's wife got sick, he had to choose whether he would buy food for the family or medicine for his wife. And then, of course, Justine would tell the donors about the good news that her ministry had been able to help them get the medical treatment and have food on the table at the same time. But the reality is there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in the world who live this way. They work all day long and all that they're able to buy with their paycheck is enough food to get their family through one more day. Meanwhile, we're here in Hong Kong with fully stocked fridges and money in the bank. The black horse is alive and well in our world today. And then we're introduced to the fourth horse the pale horse. The rider on this horse is named Death, and his buddy Hades is with him. Hades is the land of the dead, where the dead people live. And Death and Hades are given authority over one quarter of the earth to kill people in various ways. And again, this is what we'd expect. When conquerors arise, when war and strife and division are at work, when poverty is running rampant, Death is always right on their heels. Now, why do these horsemen matter for us today in our world? Well, because they're always at work in our world. By God's grace, they're not impacting every individual specific person at every single moment. Like if you look at death only has authority over one quarter of the world, it shows that his authority is limited. But these forces are always at work somewhere and somehow in our world. These horsemen are symbols of the forces, the demonic forces at work in our world that bring suffering and death and destruction. And they're not just forces out there in the world. No, they're constantly calling to you and me, trying to get us to align ourselves with them rather than God. There are always charismatic political leaders promising us, if only you give me power, I will give you heaven on earth. There's always strife and division. We are all constantly drawn to fight for ourselves, to stand up for our rights and join in the fighting and the chaos. There's always poverty in the world and you and I are constantly being drawn to pile up our own wealth at the expense of others. We're constantly being tempted to pursue ways of living that, that bring death in our world. And if you and I are gonna live as conquerors, as overcomers, as people who live faithful to Jesus, like he calls us to live. We need to be aware of these things. We need to be aware of their presence and activity in the world. We need to be aware of the ways that they're calling to us so that we can respond properly to them and live in a way that's aligned with God and his priorities rather than these forces that oppose him. We need to live with this constant awareness that Jesus is on the throne because that vision of Jesus on the throne that we looked at last week is the only thing that will keep us free from falling into these traps. 
And we also need to have this image of Jesus on the throne because knowing that Jesus died to set us free from our sin is the only thing that's going to give us freedom from guilt and shame when we inevitably fail and give in to these traps. So we need to know about these horsemen because they're always at work in our world. But also we need to recognize the presence of this suffering in our world doesn't mean God's plans are in danger. If you notice under that fourth rider, one of the ways that he kills is pestilence. That's deadly diseases like COVID. Did you realize like the number one news story in the world over the past two years was foretold in the Bible 2000 years ago? Now, let me ask you, how many of you, you don't need to put out your hands or anything. You can just think about it yourself. How many of you over the past two years during COVID have at some point felt scared or out of control? How many of you have wondered at some point whether COVID was actually derailing God's plans for the world? Well, guess what? COVID is not derailing God's plan. It's part of God's plan. And I know that might sound crazy, but with each of these horsemen, including the one that brings death through pestilence, they are released as Jesus opens the seals to bring God's plan to fulfillment on the earth. Yes, they oppose God, but they're still part of his plan, which means their authority cannot go one inch beyond what God allows them. And God has a plan to use them to bring about good in the end. Even though they think that they're opposing him and stopping him, they're not. He's using them to bring about good in the world. And no matter how dark and grim these four horsemen may make the world seem for a season, God is always on the throne. God's victory is always secure. And if we are his people, that means that our victory is secure as well. So if we're Christians, we don't need to fear in the face of these evils. We don't need to fear in the face of COVID. We don't need to fear in the face of war, of poverty, of whatever we may face in life. We can stand strong knowing our God is on the throne, so our victory is secure. That joy, not despair, always, always, always has the last word in our lives. But even though that's true in the end, in the meantime, this passage actually shows us there's special suffering set aside for Christians, and we see that in the fifth seal. As Jesus opens the fifth seal, we're introduced to the souls of those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. And John is painting us a picture here that seems to say in the midst of all this suffering that everyone experiences throughout life in a broken world, Christians are going to be singled out for special suffering. So if you look at verse 9, it talks about the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Well, the word slain here is the same Greek word as what the red horseman causes people to do to one another. And pretty much every time this word occurs in the book of Revelation, it's referring to Jesus being killed or his people being killed because of their faith in him. So, so there's this picture that as the horsemen are doing their work and spreading their chaos and suffering throughout the world, they're actually going to single out Christians for a special suffering. That if we're Christians and we're opposing the false messiahs of the world, if we're trying to live as peacemakers in a world of war, the world's going to hate us and it's going to attack us because of this. So yes, the world will suffer, but Christians are actually going to be singled out for a special suffering, which raises the question, if God's in control, 
if he's working out purposes in history that lead to our good, to the good of his people, why would he allow this? And the answer is that the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that suffering purifies us. Every Christian, just like the unbelieving world around us, tends to place too much of our hope, too much of our identity, too much of our security in the things of this world, in things that are temporary and that will not last. And suffering helps us to see that all the promises held out to us by the things of this world are false, that nothing in the world can give us lasting freedom. Nothing in this world can give us lasting security. Nothing in this world can give us lasting comfort. Suffering sets us free from the false promises of this world so we can all find our true and full identity in Jesus. And in the grand scheme of eternity, that is good for us. But it's still suffering. It's still hard to go through. Being singled out for suffering because of our faith is still unjust, which is why these souls under the altar are calling out to God for justice because they recognize what was done to us is wrong. How can you, God, be just and let our persecutors keep prospering while we're dead because they killed us unjustly. And I realize as followers of Jesus who are called to love our enemies, that may sound like a horrible prayer to pray, actually. God, please punish the people who killed us. Please bring your justice down on them. But actually, this type of prayer is what sets Christians free to keep loving people in the midst of persecution. Did you realize that? Like, it's only when I know there's a God who's going to set things right and bring justice in the end that I can let go of my own need to bring justice here and now. If I don't know that God's going to make evil people pay someday for the wrongs that they've done, then I feel the need to make them pay right now. But if God's going to bring justice in the end, then I can keep loving them. I can keep being kind to them now, no matter how badly they treat me, because I know that my deep-seated need for justice will be satisfied one day by God, and so I don't have to be the one to do that. Praying to God to bring justice when we're mistreated as Christians is our key for continuing to love our neighbors, no matter how badly they mistreat us. And so that's what these souls under the altar are doing. They're crying out, for justice. And as they cry out, they're told God's justice will come, but it's not going to come in full until the rest of the Christians who will die for their faith have also been killed. But God's justice is coming. And we start to see God's justice come with this sixth seal. God hears the prayers of his people and he steps into the world to bring justice for them. And so as the sixth seal is opened, there's this series of natural disasters on the earth. The picture being painted is, is that creation is like a canvas for someone to paint on. And, and the canvas of our current world is broken. So it's being rolled up so that a new, beautiful, and perfect canvas can be spread out in its place. But as it rolls up, it's dissolving into chaos. And the people of the earth try to hide. The people of the world who refuse to trust in Jesus and instead seek all their hope and security in this world, they see this world falling apart and they are devastated because all their hope, all their security, everything they have is being destroyed. And so in light of that, let me, let me just say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're with us, but I need you to listen to me. This world will not last forever you will not last forever. 
If all your hopes and dreams and security are resting in this world and the things in it, you're resting on a foundation that can never support you. And Jesus is showing us this vision to grip our hearts with the truth that this world will not last forever. He's showing us this so that we can turn from trusting in things that are passing away and instead find our hope and security in him. And that's his invitation to you today, to trust in him rather than the things of this world, to find your security in him rather than in the empty and hollow promises of this world that only bring death and chaos. And if you want to learn more about how to do that, please stick around after the service and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. But what we see in this passage is that as this judgment comes, the people of the world don't repent. They don't trust Jesus. Instead, they run and hide. They look at the chaos of the world. They know it's coming from God and his wrath. And so they beg for death because they hope that death will finally be the place where they can escape from God's wrath. But Revelation has already given us a glimpse behind that curtain. It's shown us that Jesus holds the keys of death which is the most comforting truth possible for Christians, because it tells us if you are a Christian, you are secure no matter what happens to you here and now. But that same truth is the most terrifying truth possible for the people of this world, because it means there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Even in death, you can't escape God. And so as these people look at the chaos and destruction of the world around them, they know that God's behind it. They cry out to the rocks and the mountains in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? And that is the key question that chapter 7 answers for us. Who can stand? As the wrath of God pours out on the earth, we see that those sealed by God can stand. So chapter seven starts with this angel coming and saying, don't harm the earth until God's servants are healed. So it's rewinding a little bit. It's not just moving chronologically forward. It's jumping back to before the earth is harmed. And we're told about two groups of people right here. In the first half of the chapter, there's 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel who are sealed. And then in the second half of the chapter, we're told there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages that is standing before the throne. Did you catch that? The question at the end of chapter six, who can stand, is answered right here as this crowd of people who have been rescued by Jesus are standing before God's throne in answer to that question. And let me first tell you, these two groups that we're introduced to in this chapter, the 144,000 from Israel and the great multitude from every nation are almost certainly the same group of people. See, throughout Revelation, John's been showing us the church is the true Israel of God. The church is the heir of God's promises that he made to ethnic Israel throughout the Old Testament. We mentioned last week that in Revelation, the number 12 always refers to the people of God. And if you take 12, the number of tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and multiply it by 12, the number of apostles in the New Testament, and multiply that by 1,000, which is a number of completion, guess what you get? 144,000. So this number of the first group and the way of labeling it as the tribes of Israel is probably actually a symbolic way of saying this group is the complete fullness of all God's people throughout all history who are sealed and protected from his wrath. 
So the other big reason why these two groups are probably the same, probably come, it comes from a parallel between this passage and the one we looked at last week. So if you were here last week, do you remember John heard a voice saying the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And then he turned to look and he saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain. He heard one description. He turned to look and saw something totally different than what he expected, but both were true. And he had to hold that tension and work out how can both be true, even though they seem so different. Well, guess what? In chapter seven, verse four, John says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. And then he lists out all the tribes. And at the end, he says, after this, in verse nine, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. So just like in chapter five, John hears one thing and then he turns to look to see that thing. He sees something totally different, but it's actually the exact same thing. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that God seals, guards, and protects all his people. He seals us so that the judgments coming on the world will not harm us. And that's true even for the people we meet in the fifth seal who he allowed to be killed for their faith. God guards all his people from all harm. And I know that sounds like a contradiction. God will guard you from all harm even if he lets you get killed. But actually, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 21, verses 16 to 18. He says, you will be delivered up, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Did you hear that? He said, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's the reality we see going on here. God seals his people. He guards and protects us from all harm, even the ones who are killed for their faith. Now, how can that be the case? Well, it's because at the end of the day, if we are Christians, the only thing that can do us any lasting harm is sin, is turning away from God and trusting in other things rather than him. If our true identity is as the people of God, if our true home is with God forever, then anything that gives us more of God, anything that draws us closer to him, even if that's death for his name's sake, is actually good for us in the long run. If suffering reveals to us that the things of this world that draw us away from God are actually lies, that's good for us in the end. If suffering breaks the allure of the conquerors of this world over our hearts and redirects our hope onto God, that's a blessing in the long run, not harm. If suffering turns us from, from our sin and to God, then in the end, we're going to be able to look back on it and say, I was not harmed at all. It was all for my good. Maybe we won't say that in the moment, but looking back from the perspective of eternity, we'll absolutely be able to say that. It's like a marathon runner who hates the suffering of training, who every day at the end of his training run is like, why am I doing this? But then he finishes the marathon and he looks back and he knows I could never have accomplished my goal of finishing this race without every single ounce of pain that I endured along the way. And therefore I'm thankful for all the hard times because now I can see them in their proper perspective. 
John's reminding us in advance that if you are a Christian, what is most true of you is the ultimate victory that you have in Jesus. Even if your experience today feels like suffering is more real than that victory, the victory is what is most true of you. If you are a Christian, you do not need to fear God's judgment. Because of the blood of Jesus, you'll be able to stand in God's judgment, secure and loved. And knowing that is what's meant to equip to live us as overcomers who remain faithful to Jesus today, no matter what we face in life. And so, yeah, it may seem strange that God's good plan for the world starts with suffering. But the suffering of these seals is given to Christians as a means of purifying us. It's actually a good gift from God for us because it rids us from, of everything that keeps us from God. So that on the day of judgment, we can stand before him with confidence, knowing him as our good and loving father, who's always worked everything for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, even in judgment, even in tough times, even in suffering, God. I pray that you would give us a perspective to see your goodness in all moments of our lives, to remember that you're working for good, even in tough times. God, I pray that you would be guarding us and protecting us from harm, but true harm, guarding us and protecting us from anything that would draw us away from you. Even if your ways of guarding us are uncomfortable in the moment, God, give us more of you. Give us deeper trust and reliance on you and free us from trusting in the things of this world. God, we can't, we can't grow in this way without you. So God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts to rescue us from ourselves and from the things of this world that draw us from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick reminder, if you have any questions about the sermon or about things in the passage that weren't covered in the sermon, send a private message on Zoom chat to Les. We'll give you about 30 seconds to do that. And then Les is going to jump on and start the Q&A time. All right, Les, do we have some questions? Yeah, not too many. Okay. Um, so I've got one question here. Uh, I think we've got about uh, three questions, Eric. Cool. Uh, the first one is, what do the white robes in this passage signify? Hmm. Yeah. So like I mentioned, other than that white horseman and the white horse that he was riding, White in this in, in the entire book of Revelation always refers to Jesus or his people. And so the white robes in this passage show that they are God's people. Um, and white is a, a picture of purity. And so the white robes show that that everything wrong that these people have done, that that all Christians have done, has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and that we stand before God uh perfect through the blood of Jesus, that we aren't standing before God defined by our corruption and our sin, but we're actually standing before God um, perfect and complete and pure through the blood of Jesus. Okay. And would that, and how is that connected 
to the act of washing their robes and making them white? Yeah, so again, the way that we are washed is through the blood of Jesus. It's, it's through our connection with Jesus that we are washed and through our connection with Jesus that we're able to, to stand before God as pure and clean, which is symbolized by these white robes. Okay, thank you. Uh, another question I have is um, um, that it, um, Hades is mentioned in this passage. Mm -hmm. um, does the Bible acknowledge any Greek mythology? <laughs> um, so the Bible, um, like we mentioned, is written by real people living in a real world. And they, they used terminology that people in their world would have uh, recognized. Um, I mean, if you, if you look in the book of Acts, um, there's, there's, there's recognition that the people in the world around definitely worship the Greek gods. Um, Paul sails on a ship at one point that has uh, a couple of Greek gods uh, on the front. Um, when Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, he walks around and sees the different idols that, um, that are worshipped in the city. So the Bible definitely recognizes the worship that happens in Greek mythology as happening in the world. Um, but it does, not, it does not recognize any gods other than the true God. Um, and so it would say all of the worship of Greek mythology is false worship that's drawing people away from the true God. Um, the, the mention of Hades here is because in that world, Hades was what people referred to as the land of the dead. Um, if it was written in our world today, they may have said the grave rather than Hades, um, but it's something that they used that would have been understood by the people in their world. What This is what we're referring to when we use this word. Okay, thank you. The next question uh, here is, do we have jobs in God's kingdom? Uh, I, I believe yes. If you look at Genesis chapter one and two, before sin enters the world, Adam and Eve had work to do. Um, they were given a pattern before sin of six days of work, one day of rest. Uh, work isn't something that came into the world because of sin and brokenness. Work is something that became really difficult and trying and unproductive, sometimes counterproductive. That all happened because of sin. Uh, but work was here before sin entered the world. And there's every reason to believe that work will continue to be there uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. God, God made us, I mean, if you look at God, he's working throughout the Bible and it says that he made us in his image. So I, I definitely believe that, that there will be some type of job for us to do in the new heavens and the new earth, but it will not bring the frustration that our current jobs bring. It will not bring the sometimes sense of futility that our current jobs bring. Um, it will be productive and joyful and purposeful and something that we look forward to each day. Great, thanks. Uh, another question. This is great, we've got a bunch of questions. Uh, another question is, uh, in relation to today's passage, if I'm doing well in life and I feel comfortable, is today's passage a warning for me? Um, I think it, it could be. The answer is maybe. Um, if, you, if you look throughout the Bible, I mean, if you look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs has a lot of really positive things to say about people who uh, work hard 
and are able to earn money through working hard and are good stewards of that money and are able to um, save and uh, be a blessing to others through that and um, and to even leave an inheritance for their children's children. The book of Proverbs praises that. However, the Bible is also clear that oftentimes the wealthy become wealthy by oppressing the people around them. And so I think the, the question is not, is wealth good or bad in and of itself, but more, um, where is our wealth coming from? Is it coming from diligence and hard work and being responsible, or is it coming from uh, mistreating and oppressing the poor around us? It's a question of where is our hope? Uh, because one of the dangers of money is that it tells us that we can hope in it instead of in God. And so I think if, if we're tempted to put our hope in money because we're doing well, then this is definitely a warning to us um, that, that money can't satisfy us. Money is, is not going to be the answer to our problems at the end of the day. Um, and so it's not a blanket wealth is bad. The, the Bible never says wealth is bad. Um, if you look even in the New Testament, um, there are lots of wealthy people who are quite involved in the church and um, whose wealth was able to be a great blessing to the church. Um, I do think there's a question of, you know, how am I stewarding, stewarding my money? Am I using it in a way that's honoring to God or am I seeing it and seeing it as a gift from him that I can now use to bless others? Or am I seeing it as, as mine and using it selfishly instead? That's another potential warning in this passage as well. Okay. Um, uh, this is a, the, the next question is, is a, a follow-up to, to suffering. Um, does the suffering that you're talking about uh, in today's passage uh, mean material or spiritual in any way? Um, yeah. Can you repeat the question? Okay, so does suffering mean material or spiritual um, uh, type of suffering? What is it exactly referring to in the passage? Yeah, so I think it can be either. I think, you know, if you look at when we suffer materially, oftentimes those are the times where we're tempted to, to grumble and complain and take matters into our own hands and stop trusting God. Um, so I don't think there's a clean break between like material suffering and spiritual suffering. I think um, oftentimes material suffering leads to some type of spiritual suffering. Uh, I think we're, we're much more uh, interconnected as whole human beings than we often give ourselves credit for. Um, and so I think, you know, there's definitely spiritual suffering here in terms of um, rejection, persecution, all of that stuff, the temptation to be drawn into this. But there's also definitely physical material, like um, most commentators would say that the, the third horseman who brings poverty almost certainly was aimed, the poverty was primarily aimed at Christians. Because in the, in the world at that time, to be a Christian often cost you job opportunities. Because to, to work, you had to be part of a trade guild and every trade guild had a patron god in the Greek society. And so every month or every couple months, they would have a big guild get together where they would participate in worship of that God. And as Christians, you couldn't participate in worship of that God. You'd end up leaving voluntarily or getting kicked out of your guild, and then you wouldn't be given any jobs and you'd be poor. And so there's this, this spiritual side of it and a physical side of it that are linked and interconnected. Thanks. Probably have time for like one more. 
maybe two more. <laughs> okay, sure. Two more. I've got two more here. Uh, one is, uh, why are the souls under the altar told to wait for the numbers to be completed? Hmm, yeah. Um, so one thing we see throughout the Bible is that God, yes, he is just. Yes, he brings judgment on people who oppose him and refuse to trust him. But part of his justice is that he gives people chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. Um, so if you look in Genesis, God promises to Abraham to give him the promised land. But he says, before I give you the promised land, your descendants are going to be sent to Egypt for 400 years and be slaves there. And he says that that is so that the iniquity of the Amorite may be fulfilled. Basically, uh, I'm giving these people like 400 more years to repent and turn to me and have second and third and 50th and 100th chances. And if they don't repent during that time, then it's completely just for me to come in and bring my judgment on them. And so we have a similar type of picture here where the people are saying, look, they've mistreated us. They've been unjust. And God says, I'm going to keep giving them chances. I'm going to keep hoping that they come to me and repent. And when the time comes where they've fulfilled all of their evil, then it will be right for me to, to bring the judgment on them. And so for now, wait. Okay, great. Um, can we do one last question? Yeah. Okay, so the last question is, so is it fair to say things will just get worse and worse until Jesus comes? So that is a great question. Um, I would say something we'll see as we move forward into the book of Revelation. I think there's, there's two things happening parallel in the book of Revelation. Um, one is we see in the New Testament that the kingdom of God has broken into our world in Jesus and his kingdom is growing and expanding and becoming this, this great kingdom that, that fills the entire world. And that's happening in the world at the same time as all this persecution is happening. It's basically as God's kingdom advances in the world and spreads and more and more people trust in Jesus and more and more people hear about him and follow him, Satan's resistance to him gets bigger and bigger and stronger and therefore persecution against Christians also grows. And so um, I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't be totally pessimistic and say things are just going to get worse and worse. Um, I would say uh, some things will get better. Some things will get worse. Some things will get worse because other things got better. Some things, I mean, God uses suffering to bring about good. So some things will get better because other things got worse first. Um, and it's, you know, Jesus said in this world, you have trouble, but fear not because I've overcome the world. And so there's, there's definitely, um, lots and lots and lots of cause for hope even in this world for us as Christians, but we have to have that. It can't just be an unbridled, unrealistic hope. We have to hold that hope at the same time, recognizing it's going to be difficult at the same time, but God's still working and God's still doing good. And, and there's still tons of reason for hope that God's going to do awesome, great things in our world today as well. Amen. Thank you for answering all of those questions, Eric. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for sending in the questions, guys. Yeah.